So we have just finished chapter 17. <clears throat> We're coming off the, you know, there in 16 and 17, we saw the final seven bowls uh, of judgment, the final judgments of God being poured out. In chapter 17, the last chapter we looked at, uh, we're given the explanation and, uh, and the identity of the Babylonian harlot and the beast that she's riding. And of course, there we saw without a shadow of a doubt that the Babylonian harlot is uh, Jerusalem. It is the, the high priestly aristocracy, the religious leadership in Jerusalem that represented the old covenant and the old system and the temple and those kind of things. And the beast she is riding is uh, um, unmistakably Rome uh, and how they align together to persecute God's people. And then at the end of chapter 17, we saw that the Roman beast turned upon the harlot and destroyed her. And that is the explanation of those judgments, how they are poured out. And we saw that in 17. And now as we look at uh, look at chapter 18, uh, we are going to uh, we're going to see also uh, the the more of the the harlot explained more of Babylon the Babylon imagery explained in this chapter I'm probably not going to go into as much detail as I have in previous chapters because um, you know to be honest we've already laid the groundwork to pretty much everything that we're going to be seeing here so if you have been following our study of Revelation then you can probably walk through chapter 18 by yourself and understand pretty much what John is communicating to us there there are a few things in this chapter that we're going to you know it's going to require some explanation from a historical and an Old Testament perspective uh, but knowing what you already know regarding the context and the scope of the book of Revelation and the things that we've already seen, the 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 things that have flowed out of chapter 17 into chapter 18, you should you should be able to understand what's going on. Uh, so I'm probably not going to be reading uh, so many quotes and things like this from the Old Testament like I have in previous chapters. I'll just give you the reference from where John is getting this imagery and language and give you the verse reference and you can go look those up. Um, of course, I'm I'm going to have to read some of them, you know, that, that I think are are important for the, for the exegesis of the chapter. But for the most part, I I hope to keep things pretty short here because in chapter in chapter chapters 19 and 20 are going to be some some tough ones. Uh, those two chapters, especially chapter 20, are the source of it's the source of 90 percent of all the controversy about the book of Revelation, specifically one verse in chapter 20. So we're going to have to do a lot of extra work to get you to understand what's going on there and the different viewpoints of the millennium and those kind of things. So I hope to keep this chapter somewhat brief. Uh, the main thrust of this chapter, once again, is to give us further explanation of the judgments that have fallen on the whore of Babylon. Uh, to call God's people to come out from among her. That's the main theme of this chapter is to, to tell God's people who are the followers of Christ to come out from among this Babylon. Um, now, just taking that summary statement, if you've been following the flow of Revelation, you should know the point. He is going to be, he's going to be talking about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and calling the Christ followers to come out from that old covenant system. Um, and the reason being because the covenant Messiah has come and it has fulfilled that system. It has been taken out of the way because it has been fulfilled by Christ. Um, I realize that this also raises some questions in this chapter. We're going to need to answer those, so I, I hope we will get to do that today. Uh, but before we start looking at the text, I'm going to I'm going to save us some time today and give you uh, give you three chapters in the Old Testament from which John is drawing the language that he's using here. I'll make mention of them as we go along, but I'm probably not going to read through them just to save us some time. You probably just need to write them down and go read them uh, yourself so you can see the parallels that he's making. John is going to describe the judgment on the whore of Babylon. He's going to describe the judgment of Babylon using imagery and language taken from the uh, descriptions of the judgments prophesied about Babylon from Jeremiah chapter 51, which talks about the judgment on Babylon, the, the true Babylon, the old you know Babylon in Jeremiah's day, uh, and also from Ezekiel 27, which is a prophecy uh, of judgment on the wicked city of Tyre. Uh, and there's a couple of passages in Isaiah that, that prophesy about the same judgments on Babylon. We're going to see those as well. 
but mainly those those sections is where John has taken the language uh, that he uses to uh, demonstrate these demonstrate these prophecies to illustrate the destruction of this new Babylon, and he's doing it in language, Old Testament language that these people would understand. So the first four verses of chapter eighteen are going to show us the warning of the judgment on this Babylon and the call for God's people to come out from among her. Uh, verse one says, "After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory." Now, there's some discussion about who this angel is. Is he is he actually Jesus himself? Uh, because glory is never ascribed to any other than God in the Book of Revelation, uh, or is he just an angel that represents God? Uh, there are arguments that could be made for both sides. Uh, I don't think it's important as to the uh, affect the message that this angel gives as to whether it is Christ himself or whether it is an angel representing Christ. Uh, I think both give us the same interpretation. This is a heavenly messenger with a divine message given um, in, in visionary form to John. And so there's lots and lots of discussion about, you know, is it really Christ or is it not? But I'm not going to get into that uh, just because it doesn't affect the way that we interpret the passage. Uh, there's good arguments on both sides. And so, you know, if you think that it is Christ because he has authority and the glory is never ascribed in Revelation to anything other, anyone other than God, um, I, I'm with you. And if you, you other people think that it's just an angel, you know, that represents and has glory because he represents God and is giving the divine message, you know, hey, I'm with you too. So, uh, you can decide for yourself what you think that is. But let's look at what he says. In verse 2 and 3 it says, And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So in the first part of uh, verse 2, we have the declaration of the fall of Babylon. This is this is the same phrase that we've seen earlier. We saw it in chapter 14 of Revelation, and we noted there that this is a quote from Isaiah um, chapter 21 verse 9, where the where the fall of Babylon is is uh, is is said to have, uh, be is be prophesied of the the original Babylon. So what we're seeing here is the same thing that we saw before. But here in chapter 18, we're going to be given a much fuller explanation of this judgment and the ramifications of it. The second part of verse 2 lists all of the the results of that judgment that's levied against her. Um, and, of course, we know that it's Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, who rejected the covenant Messiah uh, to whom these judgments have been poured out upon. Um, basically, what verse 2 is telling us is that Jerusalem has been turned over to her wickedness. She has been given over to what she desires. Uh, the city has become a keep of unclean spirits, a haunt of jackals, a haunt of demons where demons dwell. Um, the text that I quoted from in, in, in verse two is the ESV, the English standard version. Uh, I think it captures the idea best. Uh, I don't know what English translation you have, but the Greek word there means a keep or a prison. It's phulake is the, is the word. If you have a New American Standard Bible, uh, that's how it's translated. It's probably a prison for unclean things or a prison for these things. Uh, the King James Version will alternate saying that it's a, it's, a, it's a cage for unclean birds or a hold for unclean animals. All those, all those are technically valid translations of the word philike but but the word haunt or keep in the in the ESV gives the it just gives the idea that this is where these things dwell or inhabit when you say the city is a prison for unclean things it it, it kind of gives me the impression that they can't get out you know that they're held there and they they want to leave but they can't get out that's not the idea that's being communicated that what what the what's being said here is that the city which was once holy to the lord the dwelling place of god himself is now the dwelling place of demons and unclean things and this is this is echoing jeremiah's prophecy of Babylon becoming a haunt of jackals and there are two places in Isaiah that are that are being referenced um, Isaiah 13 verses 21 and 22 
and uh, and Isaiah 34 talks about Edom, the destruction of Edom. Now, when you read Isaiah 13, 21, 22 in your English translation, it may not look exactly the same as what we're seeing here in Revelation. But remember, John is quoting the Old Testament Septuagint. He's quoting the Greek Old Testament. When you open your English translation of your Old Testament, it is translated from the Hebrew, the Masoretic text. And that's a blessing for us to have that. But the apostles... Uh, in the early church, used the Greek Septuagint. They used the Greek Old Testament overwhelmingly, and that's why, you know, if you've ever noticed, when you when you see a, an, a, an Old Testament quote in your New Testament, and then you flip over to find it in the Old Testament, and it doesn't quite match exactly what you see in the New Testament. You say, well, he's kind of loose quoting it, isn't he? Uh, more, more often than not, uh, he's quoting the Septuagint, whereas your translation is from the Hebrew, the Masoretic text. And so, um, almost exclusively, the New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint. And as Isaiah 13, verse 21-22, Isaiah is prophesying the destruction of Babylon. In the, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, the verses say, Isaiah 13 says, But wild animals will lie down there, their houses will be full of howling creatures. And it says, There ostriches will dwell and their wild goats will dance. The word wild goat in Hebrew is satir. And uh, it's uh, it's that's what our English versions will say. I think uh, uh, right off the top of my head, I think uh, um, I think King James may say goat demons. And the NASB, if I'm remembering correctly, will say hairy goats or something like that. Uh, and so uh, it says ostriches and wild goats in your English translation. But in the Greek Septuagint, which John is alluding to, it says sirens, which is how they translate ostriches or the, the Hebrew word, and demons. And that's why the King James has goat demons, because the satyr, when you think of the uh, satyr in the Hebrew, you're, uh, you know, you think of uh, that guy from the Chronicles of Narnia with the with the goat feet and the goat horns and the and but he's actually a guy that was the idea that was being conveyed that demons dwell there these goat demons or whatever and so when john is quoting when john is referencing this fall of babylon and the judgments that are poured out on babylon he's using the old testament imagery that demons now dwell there and all these unclean things dwell there um if you didn't follow that, I know that was kind of complex and convoluted. Let me try to summarize it real quick for you uh, and give it to you in a nutshell so maybe it'll make it a little easier to understand. The Jews who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek uh, around 200 B.C., before Christ, uh, they translated these words in Isaiah as sirens and demons will inhabit, ba and will, will inhabit Babylon. The early church used this Greek Old Testament as their Old Testament, and the apostles quote from it in the New Testament overwhelmingly. So by saying Babylon here in Revelation will be inhabited by demons and unclean things, John is quoting from Isaiah's judgment passages on the first Babylon. Got it? Okay, I hope that's clear. In addition to that, of course, I already told you, there's another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 34, 10 through 14. I'm not going to read it, but it's the same thing. Judgment will fall on the city, will become a dwelling place of all kinds of unclean things, including demons, which, uh, once again, your English translation is going to translate it as goats or hairy goats or goat demons or something like that. So the point of all this is that this city, which was once God's dwelling place on earth, we see in Ezekiel where the Spirit of God left the temple, uh, is now described in the same judgment language as several of the ungodly cities in the Old Testament. She is not only receiving the judgment of God, but she's being turned over to the idolatry and the darkness that she has chosen for herself. Now, there are there are two things that really got get my attention when you think about this uh, when you think about Jerusalem being described this way as God's judgment falls down upon her. First is that this Babylon here in chapter 18 is the polar opposite of the new Jerusalem that we're going to see in, in Revelation chapter 21. There, we will be told that nothing unclean will ever enter into the new Jerusalem. But here, the old Jerusalem is the dwelling place now for all kinds of uncleanness, all kinds of demons and wicked things and unclean birds and unclean beasts. It is a haven for uncleanness. The second thing that's really striking to me is that Jesus foretold that Jerusalem would be turned over to be a habitation of demons in Matthew chapter 12. Now, when I say that, 
you may be thinking, you know, I've read Matthew a lot of times and I don't remember Jesus ever saying that. And, and, and I understand it completely. That's because we have so often failed to see the patterns and context in which Jesus spoke and the fulfillment of Jesus' words in the destruction of Jerusalem. Knowing what you know now about Revelation and what is being described, let me read Jesus' words to you and see if you see what I'm talking about in Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 42 through 45. We're, we're kind of breaking into Jesus' words here just as he is uh, pronouncing judgment on the hard-hearted people because they, they did not believe the work that they had seen and he's telling them you know other even pagans you know in previous times uh believed and they had far less uh far less signs and wonders far less uh word than you have he says uh in uh, matthew chapter 12 i'm gonna start in verse 42 if you want to follow me he says to them the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it uh, he's talking about the queen that came to Solomon. Uh, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about himself. And then he gives this parable that you sh- I'm sure you've heard before. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, you heard that before, and I've heard many sermons on it, good sermons about what, what it means and the applications to it. But listen to how Jesus... Jesus applies the sermon, uh, applies the parable. He's telling the people there, he's like, he tells them, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to rise up against you in judgment because they would have repented if they would have had the signs that you have. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment and condemn you because one greater than Solomon is here. And she traveled halfway around the world to see Solomon. And so then he gives this parable. Uh, when the unclean spirit gone out, it passes through, but it returns and finds the house swept and clean, brings seven more demons. And then at, I left off one little sentence at the end when I read that to you. It says, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. They will enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Jesus was prophesying this. He was giving this parable as an example of what will happen to this generation. A lot of times we miss that. We miss the significance of what he's saying there because of her rebellion against God's covenant fulfillment, because of her rejection of the Messiah. God has turned the city over to its own idolatry, and it has become a place of uh, of uncleanness and, and judgment. He, Jesus himself, makes application of that little parable, of that little teaching about the demon going out and bringing seven more back in. And he says the application that Jesus himself makes was is so will it also be with this generation. And so this is what's happening. Babylon, this new this new Babylon, Jerusalem has been turned over to its wicked wickedness. They've been turned over. They were swept and clean, but they were not regenerated and therefore a ha- they have become a haunt of demons, a a, a keep of unclean things. Uh, then in verse 3, which we read, we're given the reason the reason for her judgment, Babylon's crimes are related to us. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich because, uh, or from the power of her luxurious living. Uh, this Babylon is seen fornicating with the nations of the earth and the merchants of the earth. Uh, they've, they've grown rich from her. These things are going to be explained in great detail toward the end of the chapter, so I'm going to kind of wait until we get there. But you should get the outline from jasonvelada.com and you can see the references here to Babylon and to Tyre in the Old Testament. Jerusalem is now characterized as these wicked cities who have spoiled the nations and are spreading darkness instead of light. Uh, And we're going to see more about this as we move through the chapter. But before we get to that, 
Uh, Next, a voice from heaven calls to God's true people in verse 4. Remember, we have been told who that is. The the true people of God are those who follow the Lamb. They are are called to come out from Babylon and not take part in their sins. Verse 5 says, "Then uh, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And this is a reference uh, to Jeremiah 51. Uh, Once again, I told you that at the beginning. You can follow Jeremiah 51 throughout this uh, section. In Jeremiah 51, 45, it says, Come forth from her midst. He's talking to the people of Israel to come out from Babylon. He says, Come forth from her midst, my people, and each of you save yourself from the fierce anger of the Lord. And Jeremiah 51, 6 says, flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment for this is the time. This is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Uh, same thing you see in Isaiah forty-eight twenty. go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, <clears throat> excuse me, the Chaldeans declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it to the end of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. Same thing, Isaiah fifty two, eleven. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch not the unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. And incidentally, this is kind of interesting to me, Paul uses Isaiah fifty two eleven in second Corinthians six seventeen to call Christians, God's people, out of worldliness. You know, that's where Paul says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. He's quoting Isaiah chapter fifty two there. And so the this refers to the Jesus followers, those who follow the Lamb coming out from Judaism, coming out from the old covenant system. This Babylon, this harlot who is dressed in the high priestly robes, we saw that in chapter 17, who is offering these abominable sacrifices now that the perfect sacrifice has been given, who who worship their luxury and worship their uh, position rather than God, the God who... Uh, who who created and 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 chose them? Um, they are called the the believers who follow the Lamb are called to come out from among them. Um, the Christ, uh, the believers in Christ are are called to remain steadfast in the faith and not to return to the rudiments of Judaism, which Jesus Christ has fulfilled. Uh, this was important, of course, for the Jewish Christians, uh, but it was also important for the Gentile Christians of the first century. I'm going to explain that here in just a minute. Uh, Christians who follow Christ in the first century were, um, we've seen it before, they were repeatedly tempted to go back to the foundations and the practices, the early practices uh, of Judaism. Go back to the temple, go back to the sacrifices, go back to that that culture and that covenant. Uh, In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is written specifically for the purpose of, of exhorting the Jewish believers not to go back to Jerusalem. I mean, not to go back to Judaism. Uh, It says that Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus is better than the angels, better than the sacrifice, better than the high priest, better than... That's that's why we have the book of Hebrews in the New Testament canon. God inspired it so that it would be an apologetic for Jewish Christians to not go back to the old paths now that Jesus Christ has come. And the temptation to go back... Back to Judaism for a Jewish Christian in the first century was was huge. I mean, the persecution of Christianity continually increased, uh, you know, uh, from from Jews and from the Romans in the first century. Uh, Judaism tried to separate itself. We've seen that before from the Christians uh, by telling Rome the Romans that you know, hey, these Christians aren't another sect of Judaism; they're their own religion. And the more that that came to light, the more the Romans started persecuting the Christians. Uh, and so the 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 um, the temptation just to go along and, and go back into the Judaic system for the protection that it offered, for the, the inclusion that it offered in the society, it was huge. It was great. And so uh, they're calling the people to come out from among them. Come out from among them and hold fast to your confidence in Christ. Hold fast to the faith that, that Jesus has bought for you. Now, you might be saying, but wait a minute here. Wasn't Revelation written to seven churches in Asia Minor? I mean, wasn't most of the church at this time Gentiles? Why would this Why would this matter for Gentiles? Why describe Jerusalem's destruction to them as if it was so important to them? Uh, they weren't really being tempted to go back into Judaism, were they? Uh, the answer to that question is yes, sir. Yes, sir, they were. This temp- the temptation 
it was great for the Gentile Christians as well. Even in Asia Minor where the seven churches were located. Uh, you can see this in the writings of Paul. Galatians, Philippians, Corinthians, Romans, and Acts deal in some part with people called Judaizers. And Judaizers, what they would do, this is the name we give them, but what they would do is they tempted Gentile Christians to add the Mosaic Law, the stipulations of the Old Covenant, to their faith. Uh, circumcision, food laws, those, those kind of things. Uh, Judaizers um, Judaizers tempted uh, Christians to, to go back to the Old Covenant system, to add the Old Covenant system to their faith in Christ. And it, this is a huge part in Acts. It was the reason why the early church met in Acts chapter 15. Uh, you remember that's the Jerusalem Council. After Paul and Barnabas uh, came back from one of their missionary journeys, these people had snuck into Antioch and were teaching these things. And Paul and Barnabas had to fight against those. And finally, they went to Jerusalem to this council where they said, okay, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to keep the food laws and all those kind of things. They don't have to be Jews, but they, you know, they can't be pagan either. But they don't, have to be, they don't have to be Jews in order to be saved. The entire, the entire Bible deals with with God glorifying himself by the fulfilling of the covenant salvation which leads to completion in Jesus Christ yet many of the people try to continue living in community with God through the signs and the types that pointed to the reality through the temple and through the sacrifices and through the laws the the food laws the ceremonial laws the uncleanliness laws those kind of things Paul rails against that in Galatians you can see him railing against it in uh, Philippians chapter 3 he says beware of those who mutilate the flesh because we are the circumcision who worship Jesus Christ uh, he says the same thing in Corinthians he says the same thing in Romans uh, over and over again the New Testament itself, the New Testament itself um, has all of this apologetic material in it saying, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go back to the Judaic system. You don't have to add these things. And so, yes, sir, it was a it was a great temptation for both Jew and Gentile Christians to go back into the Old Covenant system. Those churches in Asia Minor to whom this was written and the church uh, worldwide to whom it was received, uh, they need to know that this uh, this. Uh, this place called Jerusalem as the habitation of God, the quote unquote holy city where the sacrifices are offered, this place is going to be destroyed. And so they are to come out from among that and don't follow in the Judaizers' footsteps who would say you need to add Mosaic covenant law, you need to add food laws, ceremonial laws, you need to add all these things to your faith. You follow Christ. God calls them here not to participate in her sins. Uh, the the implication is to return to Judaic religion is to reject the sacrifice for sin. Uh, the destruction of the Jeru of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, the wiping away of biblical Judaism, it is as important to first century Christians whether they were Jew or whether they were Jew or Gentile. Um, uh, you can see it throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few verses. Uh, the, in Galatians five, chap, uh, chapter five, verse two, Paul says he was telling them to follow Judaizers in adding other things, Judaic things, to Christ's sufficiency, like circumcision, is to destroy the means of salvation. Galatians five two says, "Behold, I Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you." And in Hebrews 10, this verse has often been misinterpreted. Um, it says this, I'm sure you've heard it before. Hebrews 10 verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, the context of this chapter is the sacrifices, the temple priests, which consisted of bulls and goats and that are no longer effective. If you go, if you go back to that, there's no, there's no sacrifice able to remove sin. Now, lots of people have read these verses and they use them to say that born again people can lose their salvation or all kind of things going on, but that's not what the context of the chapter of in Hebrews is referencing. 
every mention of the sacrifice in that chapter is talking about the priests in the temple offering the same sacrifices year after year to cover the sins of the people, but they can never take those sins away. Now Jesus has come and sacrificed himself once for all time so that no more sacrifices are necessary. The point that it's making there is if you go back, if you read that entire chapter, you'll realize that the verse is saying you can't go back to those sacrifices because if you willfully sin after rejecting the true sacrifice, then for you, there are no more sacrifices. You can't go and add, you can't go and sacrifice a bull. You can't go and sacrifice a goat. Uh, there is no more sacrifice for sin. What he's saying is you can't go kill any more animals. If you reject the true sacrifice, uh, that is not effective. The true sacrifice has come. And so, you can see this over and over again. The temptation was to go back to all of the types and shadows that uh, that uh, had characterized the people of God for so long. Uh, he is telling them, you got to come out from among them. Uh, believers are called to come out from among them. Now, I know this is a, sens this is a sensitive issue here, um, but this should be instructive for all of these people following what's called the, the Hebrew Roots Movement. Uh, be very careful around people who affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, but they see a higher spirituality or a greater godliness in keeping uh, Jewish feasts and fasts and rituals and all those kind of things. The Apostle Paul would roll over in his grave if he saw people putting stock in, in that kind of stuff. Now, if you enjoy it from a historical standpoint or you just like the, the culture of the the of Judaism and uh, the Jewish culture and all, you know, hey, more power to you. There's nothing wrong with it. Rock on. You know, all, all go ahead. But the the moment your heart sees those cultural expressions which pointed toward the Messiah as making you more spiritual and more in touch with God, you've denied the gospel. And you're in danger. So I'm not saying it's necessarily sinful to take part in that stuff, to have a Seder meal or anything like that. It's not sinful to do any of those kind of things. But it's very easy to slip over the edge into thinking that you're more godly in some way or that you're more spiritual or that you're more correctly obeying what God uh, wants his people to do. Uh, that is not that's not the case. We are perfected in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus Christ transcends all culture. He has Ephesians two says he has broken down the, the partition, the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. And he has brought the two people together and made them one. Read read Ephesians chapter two. Uh, so moving on, John hears, there's your sermon for the, for the episode. John hears a, a voice from heaven saying, come out from among them and don't take part in their sins. Verse five and six says, for her sins are heaped high as heaven uh, and God has remembered her iniquities, paid her back as she herself has paid back others uh, and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. Uh, these verses really don't take a lot of explanation. She has rejected the Messiah, so her sins are not forgiven. Uh, as simple as that. Uh, now, remember, this is not just a case of someone sinning and God refusing to forgive. What we're seeing here is not just an act of rebellion. We're seeing Jerusalem forsaking the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with them as a nation back in the Old Testament. We also have already been told that, you know, these people that are under judgment here are those whose names have not been written in the book of life. So their judgment is is because of their sin and rooted in the rejection of Jesus. Uh, the Those Jewish people in the Judaic system who received Christ and embraced Christ and put their trust in him, uh, they were brought out from among these people. And so to help us with this, uh, chapter 7 is, uh, uh, verse 7 and 8 is going to explain the nature of her rebellion. This is what she did. Verse 7 and 8, this is what Babylon did. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Babylon has chosen to exalt herself. She has chosen to lust after her own position and prosperity rather than after God. She loved herself more than the, the covenant Messiah. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to see the 
exact attitude being described here in the religious leadership of Jerusalem uh, in the Gospels who defied and rejected Jesus because they didn't want to lose their position or humble themselves before this carpenter who turned rabbi. Uh, but what may not be apparent to you is that this is also an illusion from the Old Testament. Isaiah 47 describes the humiliation that will come upon the first Babylon, the, the old Babylon. Isaiah 47, 7-9 says, You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sits in who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come upon you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Uh, What we see here is a picture of an adulterous woman prideful and reveling in her adultery. She is defying her covenant husband uh, and claiming that she will never seek judgment for her crime. She's she's just like Babylon of the Old Testament. Uh, and just like the Babylon of the Old Testament, she is sadly mistaken. God has rejected her for her adultery and fornication and brought judgment, uh, brought judgment upon her head for rejecting his salvation. He's going to take a new bride, the bride of the Lamb, uh, which is the new Jerusalem that we're going to see coming down out of heaven, pure and perfect, adorned for her husband, chaste and perfect, not like this uh, this mistress who says, I will not be a widow and I will not see mourning. Uh, she is going to be the perfect bride, the perfect wife, and she is made that way in Jesus Christ, not because she is so wonderful in and of herself. Um, next, in the next passage in, in uh, Revelation uh, 18, we're going to see the response of different people to the judgment on Babylon. And we're going to see these three types of people who mourn the loss of this judge city. And we're going to be commanded as the people of God to rejoice because she is judged, which is amazing today. I mean, especially that, that, that'll get you some strange looks for sure. So let's look at it. The first group is the kings of the earth. I would say, of course, the kings of the kings of the land. Verse 9 and 10 says, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The kings of the land lament her judgment. Uh, these... Could be you could see this two two different ways. They could either be the kings of the land, as in those who have power over the land, the rulers, people like Herod, the Tetrarch, uh, the Philip, the the rulers, the the Romans that uh, magistrates, the governors that were over them. Uh, remember, Jerusalem and the temple was much more than just a, a city. It was much more to the Jews than just a building in a city. It was Jerusalem was the center of religious, spiritual, political life in the region. It was the focal point of all of Jewish culture and heritage. Uh, for this city to be destroyed uh, was not just like them. Oh, darn, we lost our home. Uh, it was not just the trauma of that. It was the destruction of everything they valued. It was the destruction of their heritage. It was to them, you know, it was the center of their civilization. It was the center of everything their culture was built on. For centuries, um, they had learned that, that, you know, God chose them and their ancestors and nothing could ever defeat God's people. But now they have broken that covenant with God by denying Christ, denying the fulfillment of that covenant. So to a Jewish person inside the city, as the destruction was taking place and the temple set on fire, this would have been like the end of the world. I mean, this would have been like the end of all things. The temple, uh, what they thought was the dwelling place of God, was on fire and being plundered. Uh, Everything they had ever been taught was going up in ashes. Uh, You can imagine how the kings who ruled over them would lament. You know, no longer would Herod have any power uh, over the people because the power structure over the Jews was gained through the temple. It was gained through Jerusalem. Herod controlled the high priest, and therefore you control the high priest, you control what's being said from the temple. What's being said from the temple controls the people. And these rulers were losing their prestige, and they were losing the luxury that they had known. The temple and the prestige of 
of Jerusalem kept the Jews in line. It it provided automatic authority for the kings who ruled over the temple and the city. Um, and, and to be honest, even the Romans, I mean, if you go back and read Josephus and Tacitus, even the Romans didn't specifically desire to destroy the temple uh, when the Jews revolted. Um, you know, they didn't, Titus didn't want to destroy the temple even when he broke through the wall. It's just when, when, the, when the troops rushed in and the fighting commenced, things got out of hand, chaos ensued, and pretty soon everything was on fire and being destroyed. Um, all those who received their power and position because of their connection to the temple and the city of Jerusalem, they, they mourned the loss of this city. Uh, and, and no longer would they benefit from the luxury Jerusalem offered. There's another explanation, though. You can see there was, by this time, there were synagogues and Jews dispersed into all of the nations of the empire. Uh, I think Philo of Alexandria talks about uh, how there were, um, there were Jewish communities in every in every state of the the Roman world, all over the nation, and all of these people, all of these people um, uh, had influence in 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 one way or another, greater or lesser degree, uh, where they were. They were called the diaspora, and you can see that in Acts chapter two. All these Jews from you know Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Egypt and all those are are listed in Acts chapter two. They came to Jerusalem. Um, you can see that, and so when Jerusalem fell, this was not just a oh the people are mourning in Judea. This was people all over the Roman Empire. All the the Jews from from one corner of the empire in the diaspora all the way to the other uh, mourned and the loss of their culture, their heritage, what they knew as the dwelling place of God. It was. Uh, it was shocking. It was shocking, and it was uh, something that was deeply felt uh, all across, all across the world. Now, I'm going to read verses 11 through 17 and take it all as one big chunk. So you ready? I hope you're following along with me. This is all one section. Uh, it says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk cloth, Scarlet, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wool, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, that is human souls or human lives, uh, the fruit for which your soul long has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. That's a big chunk of text. Uh, so that's 11 through 17 what you see here is the second group of people first one were the kings of the land kings of the earth next is the merchants of the earth the merchants of the land they lament her judgment uh babylon this babylon no longer buys their goods in verses 11 through 13 that we saw and we saw the big huge list of goods there i'm not going to read them again but all of these commodities are similar to the list that are given in Ezekiel 27, 13 through 22 as and that's in that context that's a judgment on the city of Tyre uh Here's the question. Can Jerusalem really be described as this kind of cultural and economic center? I mean, I know Jerusalem was a religious center and all that, but you don't really think of Jerusalem as being like Tyre or like Corinth or like Ephesus, you know, this hub of commercial activity where people are coming and going and buying and selling. Um, let me just read you, rather than me just giving you my historical viewpoint or my historical thoughts, let me read you some quotes. Um, some man named Joachim Jeremiah in his book uh, Jerusalem in the time of Jesus uh, it says the conclusion is reached these these quotes are in the outline too so you don't have to write them down the conclusion is reached that foreign trade had considerable importance for the holy city the temple drew the largest share for the rest foreign trade consisted of food supplies precious metals luxury goods and clothing materials and in that same book he also says in fact the province of syria to which the province of judah really belonged was the equal of egypt as far as commerce and industry were concerned among the province of the roman empire so cultural conditions were favorable 
for commerce in Jerusalem. That's uh, in the same book, Je- Je- Jehoiakim Jeremiah. Excuse me, that's a mouthful to say. Um, the probably the the um, um, the most um, the, the most standard work on the history of the Jews and the history of uh, the temple in the city is by a man named Alfred Edersheim. Uh, he probably has written the, um, the the scholarly standard on that uh, on that time period in the history. It's called the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and it's it's in different volumes. In volume one of the Life and Times of Jesus Messiah, uh, on the 116th page, Alfred Edersheim writes this. It says. In these streets and lanes, everything might be purchased, the production of Palestine or imported from foreign lands, nay, the rarest articles from the remotest parts, exquisitely shaped, uh, curiously designed and jeweled cups, rings, and other workmanship of precious metals, glass, silks, fine linen, wooden stuffs, purple, costly hangings, essence, ointments, perfumes as precious as gold, articles of food, drink from foreign lands. In short, what India, Persia, Arabia, Media, Egypt, Italy, Greece, and even the far-off lands of the Gentiles yielded might be had in these bazaars. Ancient Jewish writings enable us to identify no fewer than 118 different articles of import from foreign lands covering more than even modern luxury has devised and so yes you see from historians from historians of the time period from jewish uh, jewish uh, uh, sources jewish writings and uh, and uh, scholarly works that Ju- the jerusalem was a uh, was a commercial center they were buying and selling lots and lots of things they were all, all uh, you know edersheim says that all the things from all over the empire could be bought there and so it says here that the part of this judgment, the destruction, of course, the merchants of the land, the merchants of the earth will will mourn, will mourn when this city is destroyed because she'll no longer buy buy her wares. It says Babylon in verse 14, it says your your luxuries, the things that you love they're removed from you. Notice that these these luxuries are what she has set her heart upon. Jerusalem no longer seeked after God. Even you can see that in the Gospels. Jerusalem didn't seek after God. They didn't seek after his Messiah. They sought to keep their position. They sought to keep their preeminence. They sought to keep their religious standing intact. She no longer sought devotion to God or righteousness, but she's drunk with her power. She's drunk with her beauty and her prestige. And... <clears throat> At the end of that section, you saw the lament of the merchants. They sang their song, their song of woe. Judgment has fallen suddenly. Uh, and so they sang their, their, their lament over the destruction of the cities. And then in verse 17 through 19, you have another group, the third and final group, which is the sailors, the seamen who lament her judgment. Uh, it says, for in a single hour, all the sailors lament her judgment for in a single hour, uh, all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all who trade is, whose trade is on the sea stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. This section also alludes to Ezekiel 27, which is... Um, the judgment on the city of Tyre, uh, verses 28 through 33. I'm not going to read those to you. You can go look them up. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The sailors, they, they cry for the city's loss. And same thing we see with the merchants. But but uh, look at this. The next verses, it's amazing to me that uh, God's people, his true people, are not called to mourn, not called to lament. They're called to rejoice over this destruction. You've seen the kings of the earth, you've seen the merchants, and you've seen the sailors, the seafarers, are all mourning the loss of this city, mourning the destruction of the city. But verse 20 tells us, it says, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So we see those who rejoice over Babylon, the people of God, are commanded to rejoice over her fall. Uh, it's amazing. Notice that the, the, the enemy of Christ 
is the enemy of God, the Father as well. When you say, you know, every time I say this is Jerusalem being destroyed because she is uh, adulterous and has uh, forsaken the covenant by rejecting the Messiah, there are people that get so mad. They get so mad just because, you know, you know the reasons why they get so mad. <clears throat> but if you are an enemy to Christ, you are an enemy to God the Father. If you, I mean, he said it himself. He says, no one comes to the Father unless they come through Christ. So I don't care, you know, if you, you know, the the Muslims believe in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all them as well, but they don't worship the God that we worship. Uh, and so if you don't worship God through Christ, then you don't worship the Father. You don't worship the true God. And so the enemy of Christ is the enemy of God the Father. And God says here, listen, you saints, you apostles, and you prophets, that's Old and New Testament people. He says, you rejoice. You rejoice that judgment has fallen upon her. Rejoice that she is being taken out of the way. And uh, the, the new covenant is being ratified. And you are Jesus is being vindicated in his death and resurrection. Uh, finally, her judgment is given. He says, for God has given judgment for you against her remember for all the way from chapter four on the people are under the altar of god martyrs are under the altar of god begging for judgment begging for judgment how long O lord will you not judge what they have done will you not avenge our deaths finally that judgment has been given the people are to rejoice over the fall of god's enemy this gives, uh, you know, you could bring in here, if I were preaching or something, uh, you could bring in the application of the imprecatory psalms. And the psalms, the imprecatory psalm is the one where it says, you know, God smash the teeth of my enemy and destroy them. With You know, you, you're praying for their destruction. We're told here to rejoice over the destruction of this city and what it stands for because it is replacing the fulfillment of the covenant with the signs and the foreshadowing of the covenant. So the, the last four verses that we're going to see, verses 21 uh, through, through 24, it says, uh, it says uh, it's going to be summed up a picture that you and I should really be f familiar with. It says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. Uh, the millstone is thrown into the sea as it, that that ought to be ringing some bells. I mean, this is the exact picture that Jesus gives us about what will happen to those who cause his little ones to stumble, those who cause his little ones to be offended. You can read that in Luke 17:2, Matthew 18:6, Mark 9:42. It's also, however, an allusion to Jeremiah 51 verses 61 and 64, where Jeremiah is told to tie a stone to the book uh, that he reads and cast it into the Euphrates, and it says, so will Babylon be. Uh, <clears throat> this this alludes to the fact that Jerusalem, uh, where it says, will be found no more. It doesn't mean that there'll never be another city again. Uh, it means that Jerusalem will be found no more as the city of God. Uh, if you compare the language describing Edom's destruction in Isaiah 34, verses 9 through 10, it says, And the streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch night and day. It shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. If you go to the place where Edom, the ground of Edom is, it, it's not on fire today there is grass there there are trees there uh today the ground on which it sits is it's not burning and it's not wasteland but what you see here is a picture it's a picture of judgment that this will no longer be this will no longer be the place of the edomites and of course it's not they've been wiped out uh the body of christ what he's saying here is is that uh, jerusalem is no longer uh, the earthly Jerusalem is no longer the city of God. The body of Christ is now the habitation of God. It's not a piece of land or a gold-encrusted building. You can see that in 1 Peter 2, 5, 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10, uh, Galatians 6, 16, Matthew 21, 43. Go look those up. They're in the outline as well. Uh, the body of Christ is the habitation of God. And you can see that in Galatians. It's off the top of my head. I can't remember, but... I'm going to say it's around Galatians chapter 5. It might be chapter 6, what's listed there in the outline. 
but Paul says the Jerusalem, which is earthly Jerusalem, is a slave, just as Hagar was a slave. But the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all, is free, is a free Jerusalem. And so we look to that heavenly city at the end of the book of Hebrews. It says Abraham looked to that heavenly city. And we look to that heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven. We'll see that again. Now, this does raise a question. Romans 11 does describe uh, the position that before the end of history, uh, Jews in mass as a group will come to faith in Christ. Uh, I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. I believe that that the true statement that just like the Gentiles were grafted into the tree, so there will come a day when ma- Jews in mass will turn to Christ and will be grafted into that tree as well. Uh, just like Paul says in Romans chapter 11, but when they do what are they're being grafted into the church of Jesus Christ. They're going to be Christ followers. They're not going to be saved just because they're Jewish guys or gals or whatever, they're going to be saved through Jesus Christ just like everybody else will be, and they will be part of the body of Christ. And so they will they will indeed in mass turn toward, you know, Romans 11 says at the end, before the end, they will turn in mass to Jesus Christ, and we're looking forward to that day. But they will be Christ followers. And so let's <clears throat> ending this thing up in, in 23... 22 and 23, it says, it's talking about the destruction of the city. It says, and the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp shall shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more for your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. It's very interesting. This is the the results of uh, Babylon's fall. Uh, there are allusions here to the fall of Tyre again, Ezekiel 27, 28. Uh, but the point is that uh, the it could be one of two things. The point here is that everything that characterizes a prospering civilization and the blessings of God will be removed. Uh, there are some people, and this is very interesting to me, uh, I mean, I wouldn't stake my life on it or die on this hill or anything, but there are some that link each of these categories with the temple itself. Um, the music will be no more. For example, uh, this is all in the outline too, so you can look at it there. Uh, music will be no more describes the Levite singers, the musicians. You can see those in First Chronicles 25, Ezekiel 28. Uh, the craftsmen will be no more. Of course, it was craftsmen who made the tabernacle, the temple, Exodus 31, uh, 1 Kings 5. Um, interestingly enough, David Chilton says that these craftsmen should be viewed through the lens of Zechariah 1, 18-21, which shows Zechariah's vision of four craftsmen who restrain the tyranny of the heathen over God's people. So he makes that connection about the craftsmen will be no more, showing that there's there's going to be no more to restrain uh, the heathen dominating over you. Uh, the mill uh, will sound there no more. Uh, the temple itself, a lot of people don't know this, the temple itself was built on, quote-unquote, the threshing floor, the mill uh, on Mount Moriah. You can see that in Second Chronicles 3.1. And the light will shine there no more. Could refer to the lampstands of the temple, uh, Exodus 25. Um, the voice of the marriage will be there no more. The voice of the bride, the bridegroom will be no more. That really doesn't need much explanation. Uh, the covenant has been broken by the people. Therefore, the 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 voice, the the echoes of the covenant, the uh, song of the covenant will be heard there uh, no more. Uh, incidentally, you know, all that is, you know, I, I wouldn't fight and die for any of that. You know, it may just be that the 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 signs of prospering civilization is is not going to be found there anymore. Uh, it may just be that uh, these are all allusions that people have have drawn and, and make connections, and there some of them are pretty interesting. Some of them are pretty interesting, but you know, I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't stake my life on any of it, any of those uh, those connections. But except the voice of the marriage. Now let me ask you, whatever that means. Let's just say you know if it means <clears throat> it's it's definitely something to do with the covenant because here Babylon is called an adulterous wife, and then in uh, uh, twenty twenty one uh, the bride of Christ is going to be adorned as a bride. You know, she's a bride for her husband. So the idea of marriage is uh, infused with the idea of covenant as well. And it says the voice of the marriage will be there no more. What other city? In the world, would you say that the voice of the marriage has between God and man has been heard in uh, other than Jerusalem? 
Um, I think it's a pretty good case there and to uh, to solidify it, to put the nail in the coffin, so to speak. Uh, verse 23, the end of verse 23 and verse 24 says it shows us that this city, the world has been deceived by her sorcery. It was deceived by her, her sorcery uh, because, you know, they they have you know, deceived the world by offering their religious wares, by saying this is the way you must worship. This is the way you must be when the true fulfillment of the covenant had already come, been crucified and rose again. Um, it was, it was, they were deceiving the world. They were deceiving the earth uh, by, by bringing their religion. Jesus even said, you, you travel from, you know, you travel across land and sea to make a convert. And when you do convert somebody, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. And uh, false religion is any religion without Jesus. Even, you know, even if you mention, even though, you know, you say, well, Jesus was a great prophet. He was a great man. He was a great whatever. Without the death, the burial and the resurrection, you have false false religion and so this this chapter culminates in verse 24 where it says and in her was found in this city was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth and so that should solidify being deceived by the sorcery and this verse saying that in her was found all the blood of the prophets and the saints that should solidify what city we're talking about notice we're talking about a city there are a lot of people say well now this babylon is the end time empire of all that i don't see how it can be when it's described as a city it says and in her was found the blood of the prophets uh, in her was found the blood of the prophet. She has killed God's people and God's messengers. We go back to the same verse I've read to you many times. Matthew 23, 34 through 38. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues, persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. The message of the message of the last two or three chapters is is pretty clear. Um, the the command for us in the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all of this uh, language of vengeance and righteousness and judgment, is to come out from among her and be separate. Paul uses the same language in uh, in the Second Corinthians for us to to come out and be separate from the world. We're to come out and be separate from all that calls itself a uh, false religion, all that calls itself. Uh, um, goodness and righteousness outside of the righteousness of Christ. And here, what we're seeing is a call for the early church, the early church to forsake that false religion, to forsake the types and shadows uh, and, and not exchange religion for the reality of knowing Christ.